Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. If you're using one of the church Bibles from the back, it's page 1101. Acts chapter 8. Last week we looked together at the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It was a sermon preached by Stephen. And it ended, you may remember, with Stephen's execution. We were told that as he was speaking, his audience became furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. They covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. Finally, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and stoned him to death. Stephen became the first person to die for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. This morning, our passage picks up on the day of Stephen's death. If you look in your Bible, you'll notice that the first sentence in chapter 8 really belongs with the end of chapter 7. So we're going to start in the middle of verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 25. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, "'Give me also this ability.'" so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. This is God's word. And this passage is about God's untamable power. In the opening verses, we see that power being challenged by human opposition. But what we find is that human opposition cannot limit God's power. Acts chapter 1 told us that before the risen Jesus had returned to heaven, he gave his disciples this promise and instruction. He said to them, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus' promise has been fulfilled. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. That was recorded in chapter 2. But we have to ask, how far have Jesus' followers got in obeying his instruction? They've certainly been witnessing wholeheartedly in Jerusalem. But they've made no move to go out and witness beyond Jerusalem. It's hard to be sure how much time has passed between chapter 2 and chapter 8. But it's certainly long enough for the church to have made some moves, or at least some plans to reach out. Yet for whatever reason, there's no indication those kind of plans are being made. But now something happens that forces the church beyond Jerusalem. Stephen's preaching has convinced significant amounts of people, including powerful people, that this Jesus movement is dangerous. They have become convinced it's a threat to their cherished way of life, their traditions. It's a threat to their sense of security before God and their feelings of superiority over other people. The feeling seems to be, who are these newcomers to start calling Israel to repent and turn to Jesus? So verse 1 tells us that on the day of Stephen's execution, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. There are a couple of significant things in that statement. First of all, Luke wants us to see that this attempt to destroy the church has actually pushed it on to fulfill stage two of Jesus' instructions. According to chapter one, verse eight on the screen, after Jerusalem, they were to witness in Judea and Samaria. And now the evil intention of the church's enemies has unintentionally moved God's plan forward. I say unintentionally because the persecutors didn't intend to help fulfill Jesus' instructions. 
But that's the result of their persecution. If things had stayed fairly safe in Jerusalem, the church might never have moved beyond Jerusalem. And the second thing to notice here is the word Luke uses for this movement. He says the members of the church were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's the word that was normally used to talk about sowing seed. From one perspective, this persecution is a terrible thing. But there is a greater power at work here. God himself is using even this to advance his plans. He's using this bitter wind of human opposition to scatter his witnesses around like seed. And verse 4 tells us, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. On the surface, this persecution seems like a disaster. But God is using it to sow the seed of his word beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Human opposition cannot limit God's power. We might wonder why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says they were the only ones who weren't scattered. It's hard to be sure why they stayed, but we can be sure that staying was not the easy option. In chapter 12, we'll read about the apostle James being executed in Jerusalem. And Peter came very close to the same thing. I would guess they stayed because they believed it was their duty to stay. Jerusalem is still the home base of the church. They believe that they should be there to give leadership, no matter how dangerous it is. In any case, the message here is that God's power is untamable. Twice in previous chapters, we've been told that God used the evil of Jesus' crucifixion to serve his own good plans, to provide salvation for the world. Now the message is, God is also using the evil of Stephen's death and the persecution that followed it to serve his own good plans, to spread the message of salvation. The persecutors are still guilty. They're fighting against God. And yet, even their opposition ends up serving God. And the whole history of the church bears this out again and again. Human opposition to the church cannot tame God's power. This is an important truth truth for us to grasp. Because right now there are signs that life in this country is going to get harder for Christians. I think that in the next 10 years, there will be a steadily increasing cost to following Jesus. There will be an increasing stigma attached to those who believe the Bible and accept the authority of the Bible. And yes, we have the responsibility to be pleasant and sensitive as we live our lives and as we share our message. But no matter how pleasant and sensitive we are, there's every indication that those who give Jesus his place as Lord in their lives are not going to be well thought of in our society. 
So given that reality, what should our attitude be? Well, if we pay attention to the book of Acts, we have no reason to be pessimistic. We have no reason to walk around in gloom. The message of Acts is that human opposition cannot limit or tame God's power. He's just as sovereign during times of persecution for the church as he is during times of favor for the church. He will build his church in spite of human opposition. When we look back from eternity, we'll see that even the effects of those who hated Christianity, even their efforts, ultimately work to advance God's kingdom. So let's not panic. Let's not turn into people who are prickly or hateful. And let's not be defeatist. Yes, our lives might get less comfortable in the next few years. But when did God ever say that our lives were supposed to be comfortable? Let's trust him and let's be faithful. And let's use the opportunities he gives us. Because even in the midst of persecution, if that's what's going to come, even in the midst of persecution, God will give us opportunities to be his witnesses. He will use us to spread the good news about Jesus. That's what we find Philip doing, taking his opportunities. You may remember Philip was one of the seven waiters who were chosen by the church in chapter 6. They were given the job of overseeing food distribution to needy church members. But as we saw last week with Stephen... These men were determined to give out more than just food. They shared the gospel too. Look down to verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. There's a common idea that history is one big battle between good and evil. That good and evil are two equal but opposite powers. Pretty evenly balanced. And we have to wait and see how it's all going to turn out. That's the idea behind Star Wars, for example and the superhero films that keep appearing. It's an evenly balanced fight. And we'll just have to wait and see. Fingers crossed. But according to the Bible, that way of thinking is rubbish. According to the Bible, yes, there are forces of good and evil, and certainly they're in opposition to one another. But they're not evenly balanced powers. There's no question about the final outcome. God is infinitely more powerful than the combined forces of the devil and evil man. There's no contest. Superhero films are exciting because there's always a doubt about the outcome. Maybe the bad guy really will win this time. 
But according to the Bible, reality is much less suspenseful. There's never any doubt who's going to win. Because God's power dwarfs every other power. And we see this played out on a small scale in the ministry of Philip in Samaria. Verses 6 to 7 tell us that God worked powerfully through Philip. Alongside his sharing of the good news, there were many miraculous signs. That's the way the healings are described. And it's significant that they're called signs. These aren't just healings. They are signs that what Philip is saying is true. These signs win a hearing for Philip's message. Verse 6 says, they cause the people to pay close attention to what Philip says. And then we're told that the power that has arrived with Philip is not the first supernatural power these people have been exposed to. Look at verse 9. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. These verses tell us that the reality of God's power exposes the feebleness of every other power. It seems that Simon has access to some kind of supernatural power. It seems that whatever it is he has, it's more than just smoke and mirrors. The people are amazed by his power. And when he boasts to them that he is someone great, that probably means he's claiming to be some kind of God. When he makes that boast, the people are prepared to accept it. In verse 10, they say, this man is the divine power known as the great power. The Bible never denies that there are other real supernatural powers in the world. And in some cases, they do a reasonable job of imitating God's work. For example, back in the book of Exodus, when Moses and Aaron went to lead God's people out of slavery in Egypt, we were told that pharaohs, magicians, and sorcerers were able to copy some of the signs that Moses and Aaron did. The magicians could turn their staffs into snakes. They could turn water into blood, just like Moses did. They had power, but it was a very limited power. We're told that Aaron's staff swallowed the other staffs. And while Pharaoh's magicians could also turn water into blood, they couldn't undo what Moses did. They couldn't turn the river Nile back into water again. When their power was seen by itself, it was impressive. 
But when it was seen alongside God's power, it was feeble. And that's what happens here. When Philip arrives in Samaria, Simon's power pales in comparison to the power that's at work through Philip. And notice that unlike Simon, Philip is not trying to make a name for himself. Verse 12 says, he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Philip is boasting that Jesus, not Philip, is someone great. These people in Samaria were familiar with displays of supernatural power. But they realize that a greater power is at work here. They believe Philip's message and they're baptized. And notice again, Philip's message is the main thing. The miraculous signs only gain a hearing for the message. Then we're told that even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Simon had thought he knew about power. But when Philip comes, even Simon is astonished by what he sees. It's the same word that was translated amazed in verses 9 and 11. In those verses, it was used of the people being amazed by Simon. Now he's the one amazed by what God is doing through Philip. The reality of God's power exposes the feebleness of every other power. You and I do not live in the universe of Star Wars. We live in the real universe. The one ruled by God the Father Almighty. No enemy and no rival power can threaten his reign. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God... They sent Peter and John to them. If we're going to really understand the situation here, we have to ask who the Samaritans are. That's the name for people who live in Samaria. Are these people Jews or are they Gentiles? Well, the answer is they're somewhere in between. To a certain degree, they could trace their ancestry back to the Israelites. But about a thousand years before the New Testament, there had been a division among the Israelites. And the group that became known as the Samaritans didn't accept the temple in Jerusalem. They built their own temple elsewhere. And they only accepted the first part of the Old Testament, the first five books known as the Pentateuch. And they intermarried with non-Israelites. And by New Testament times, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were seen as rebels and foreigners who were compromised in just about every way possible. That helps us to understand that Philip has taken a significant step in choosing to go and tell the Samaritans about Jesus. This is the first time a follower of Jesus has taken the message outside the circle of Judaism. But before long, Peter and John come to support Philip's work. They're giving the official thumbs up to the step that Philip has taken. 
Verse 15 says they pray for these new believers. But this is where it might get confusing for us. Because the text says in verse 15, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. We might ask, but didn't the Holy Spirit already come on the day of Pentecost? And didn't Peter say in his preaching then that from now on men and women would receive the Holy Spirit when they repented of their sins? Didn't he say that forgiveness and the Holy Spirit are received at the same time? Yes, that's true. So then we might ask, how come these people have believed and been baptized, but they don't receive the Holy Spirit until a bit later, when Peter and John arrive and pray for them? Does this mean that today you can be a follower of Jesus and not have the Holy Spirit? No, I don't think that's what this means. The key here is that the good news has just reached a new people group. And when that happens in Acts, that new group receives their own little day of Pentecost. It seems to be God's gracious way of giving double assurance. First of all, it gives assurance to the already existing believers. It assures them that, yes, the good news is for these other people too. God welcomes these people as full members of his family. And these repeats of Pentecost also give assurance to the new believers. It says to them, yes, you really are in. You really do have full acceptance into this new family of God called the church. The church is not just for people with Jewish passports. And this pattern is confirmed in chapter 10 when a group of Gentiles trust in Jesus. What we find in chapter 10 is that they also have their own little Pentecost experience. So at each stage, first the Jews, then the Samaritans who are halfway between Jews and Gentiles, and then the Gentiles too. At each stage of the spread of the message, the new group receives a special sign from God. It's a sign that his family is for them too. And from that point on, as new members of that group turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit in the normal way. Meaning, they receive it at the same time as they receive forgiveness and new life. So the New Testament does not tell us to expect a two-stage gift from God. It all comes to us as a package when we turn to Jesus. But let's not miss the significance of this. The Jewish believers are discovering that God's power is for all God's people. In God's family, there are no levels of privilege. If you're in, you're all in. You're fully accepted. 
You're fully equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God. There are no nationalities who are given a special place in the family. There are no occupations that open up greater reserves of God's power to you. Pastors have no more access to the Spirit than anyone else. Now I realize that for some of us that might seem obvious. But it would not have been obvious to the first Christians who were all Jews. Here God is beginning to teach them. And he will continue to teach them as the book goes on. God's power is for all God's people. So if you're trusting in Jesus, if you picture him on the cross and say, his death did all that needed to be done for me. It paid the debt of my sin. It washed away the guilt of my sin. It reconciled me to God. If you've come to that place, then don't ever think of yourself as a second-class Christian. Don't think fellowship with God and service for God are just for other, better Christians. God has given you his own Holy Spirit. His power is at work in you. Let that truth work its way out into your life. Verse 18 picks up the story of Simon, the magician we met earlier. We're told, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also the ability, this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 told us that Simon believed. And I think we should take that statement at face value. We're to assume Simon's conversion was genuine. He truly did come to faith in Jesus. But here we learn that his understanding of the Christian life is messed up. Remember what Simon was like before he came to Jesus. Verse 9 told us he boasted that he was someone great. He was into self-promotion in a big way. And now, although he has believed Philip's message about Jesus, Simon is getting tripped up by his old way of thinking. He sees this awesome power that seems to be flowing through Peter and John, and his old instincts kick in. Imagine if I could get in on that. The pride and the desire for celebrity that controlled Simon before his conversion, those things have not vanished from his heart. They rear their heads again, and Simon gives in to them. And surely all of us have experienced this. We know that the sins and the temptations that plagued us before we came to Jesus... They don't just conveniently disappear into the sunset once we become Christians. In fact, in many cases, they can become more insistent. Before we gave our lives to Christ, those sins had no rival in our life. They had the run of things. 
They were happy. But now, they've been kicked off the throne in our lives. There's a new Lord in place. And the old sins are not going to go quietly. They're going to fight for their old position. John Calvin said, the roots of vice are too deep in us to be torn out in a day or two. Yes, it is wonderfully true that Christ brings new life. He makes us alive where we were once dead in our sins. He gives us the power and equipment to fight against sin. But it is a fight. The sins that used to be old friends are now stubborn enemies in our lives. Simon is in danger of losing a very important fight. And Peter is about to show him just how important this fight is. Simon is offered to pay for the ability to dispense the Holy Spirit. And Peter replies in verse 20, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Verse 20 reads in the NIV, May your money perish with you. What Peter is saying is, To hell with you and your money. Peter is not putting a curse on Simon. He's giving him a no-nonsense wake-up call. Simon is acting like someone who doesn't know God. Someone who's still captive to sin. He needs to repent of his wickedness and pray to the Lord for forgiveness. We might ask, is Peter overreacting here? Hardly. Back in chapter 5, Peter saw both Ananias and Sapphira drop dead at his feet. Why? Because they were trying to use money to gain a reputation for themselves. They were struck dead for the same sin Simon is messing with. It's no wonder Peter pounces on Simon. Simon needs to get the message that God's power is not for human self-promotion. Simon needs to repent of trying to buy God's gift and use it to make himself a big man. In all of our service for God, and in the times when God may bless our service, we need to keep this truth in front of us. It's not about us. It's not about elevating ourselves. It's not about rising up the ranks. God's power is at work for our good, yes, but never for our self-glorification. God's power works for God's glory. It will not be tamed to serve our agenda, whatever it is.
And maybe some of us think this isn't a danger for us. But it is. No matter what our area of service is in the church, it's so easy to start thinking, I did that. And didn't I do it well? Don't I deserve a bit of applause? Just a little bit. Have you ever started a sentence by saying, I don't do it for the praise, but a bit of recognition would be nice. Just a bit of a higher profile. Nothing big, really. When we start thinking that way, we need to repent. Who was it that gave us the power to serve? Who was it that brought good out of our service? It was God. So let's keep our hands off the glory. God's power is not for human self-promotion. We might wonder what became of Simon. Well, in verse 24, he says to Peter, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. I see no reason to doubt Simon's sincerity here. This seems to be genuine repentance. But regardless of what ultimately happened to Simon, his story is here as a warning to us. God's power is untamable. It's not some kind of magic we can use for our own ends. And yet, in his great mercy, God calls each of us to come and experience his power. His power to save and cleanse and keep us. That's the message the church has been sharing for over 2,000 years. By submitting himself to death on a cross, the God of infinite power made a way for us to know him and spend eternity with him. And when we give our lives over to him, then every day he supplies us with power to live for him that day. We're going to close by praising him as we sing Mystery of Mysteries and then there's a higher throne.